Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. We'll get started. Father, we thank you for your presence with us today as your people. We desire that you would be honored, that you would be trusted as the holy God that you are. Holy God that has drawn near to us, who delights in his people, who delights to hear our praises. And as your word goes forth, Lord, as it is and as, as it has been read aloud and sung and now proclaimed, may your people be blessed. May your spirit apply it to each of our hearts that we would desire to ascend to the hill of the Lord under the banner of the King, under the blood of the new covenant, and learn from you. Lord, may it not just encourage us, but may it change our very lives. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we will continue in our study of Daniel 2, and as noted last Lord's Day, taking a little time because we want to flesh out some of the the profound implications of this stone that has been cut out without hands, as Daniel describes and interprets the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and to see what it holds in store in God's great plan of redemption, not only to redeem his people, but to redeem the whole of creation, in which he will dwell for, with his people forever and ever. And so there is a great benefit in understanding really salvation from, from a heavenly point of view. How does God see the outworking of his plan? How does he view this earth? How does he view the kingdoms of this earth? And what does he plan to do with them? How does he plan to be involved in that wondrous work of seeing his kingdom flourish and extend to the very ends of the earth? And so we come to Daniel 2 once again, and we have some select verses, and I will read them so they are fresh in our minds. Daniel chapter 2, let's do verses 34 and 35, and then verses 44 through 45 that describe this magnificent kingdom of which we are a part. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And then verses 44 through 45. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. May God be blessed by the reading of his word. So we are in part three of Rock of Ages, the stone that became a mountain, which highlights for us the inevitable, irresistible growth of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which is, I believe, the primary narrative of Scripture, how God is glorified through the glorious reign of his Son. And so as we come to this today, we find ourselves uh, basically point number four, and just by way of quick review, we are talking about the message that the mountain sends, not just the message that the, that the mountain talks about or discusses, we are talking about a, a mountain that proclaims, a mountain that has a voice of its own, an authority of its own, that shouts out. So what does the mountain proclaim for us today? And we will get to that, but first, the, fir the first thing the mountain proclaims God's distinction of his own kingdom. That's the very first thing that we marked out in our study of this stone cut out without hands that becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. God is immediately making a distinction between his kingdom and the mere temporary kingdoms of men. A kingdom that far tra tra transcends 
in terms transcends the limitations of these earthly kingdoms, a kingdom that is glorious in its scope and endures forever, that outlasts and subdues and ultimately puts to an end these earthly kingdoms, a kingdom without equal. And God makes sure that his kingdom is distinct. We should view the kingdom of God and, and see the difference inherently, the inherent difference between the way God runs the kingdom through his son, Jesus Christ, and the way that man runs his kingdoms. So that's the first thing. You have this statue with all its limitations, with all of its fading glory, and then you have a stone, again, not part of the statue that is cut out without hands, destroys this statue, and we would say it's, it's a continuing work of subduing and conquering as time goes on. And so while we see these other statues, the, 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 these kingdoms shrink and ultimately come to naught, we see the kingdom of God grow and extend till, as, as the point is made clear, the whole earth is the mountain. There is no place on earth where the kingdom of God will not be present. We, we would say this is a growing, present reality. Don't forget that. It's not something that we see in the far distant future that is going to appear instantaneously. It has appeared, as Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God has come near to you. And it's not as if when Christ ascended, the kingdom of God went with him. The kingdom of God remains, and the message, the good news of the, of the kingdom of God is to be proclaimed throughout all the nations, and so it has done up until now. Secondly, the mountain proclaims God's devotion to His Son. Right? The fact that God has given, the Father has given His Son a kingdom, highlights His great and deep love for His Son. The God, the God desires to see His Son glorified. He, des, he desires to express His love toward His Son. And so one of the ways in which He does that is by giving His Son a people and a kingdom, basically giving His Son rule and authority over creation. The new, the last Adam. See, where the old Adam failed to subdue and, and basically cultivate this world so that the presence of God was everywhere, that responsibility has been handed over to his son, Jesus Christ, who has conquered sin and death and who now reigns as the new and last Adam over creation and his kingdom and his temple and his garden continue to grow and flourish wherever his kingdom is cultivated faithfully. Thirdly, the mountain proclaims God's desire to fellowship with man, to fellowship with his people. So again, we talked about God's love for his son, and of course, we experience the love of the Father as mediated through the Son. That's where we see God's love for us, where God desires to draw near, and yet he can draw near to us and not kill us. That is the wonder of God's grace and mercy toward us, because we have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. We come in the name of the Son. We come in the name of the King, and we can come to the throne of grace without fear, without dread of being destroyed, knowing that God receives us as His own, as His very children, as His sons. And so we find the Father's great love for us. Fourthly, and this is all we will do today, I think this is worth uh, just isolating and talking about on its own, but the fourth thing, the mountain proclaims God's delight in His children. The mountain proclaims God's delight in His children. So we've talked about God's desire to draw near to us. We've talked about that as a, an act of love. But I want to highlight the very nature and character of God's love for us. Having drawn near to us, what is life on the mountain like? Right? What's, what's the experience for the Christian? What's the experience for the, the, the holy assembly of God? And this remains a challenge for many saints. It remains a challenge for many of you sitting in this room right now. If I told you that God delighted in you, you would, some of you would have a hard time believing that. Sometimes I, I face that challenge as well. You really, you really have not actually sat down in, in, in any respectable amount of time and considered the depth of God's delight in you. That God not only loves you, but He likes you. Right? He delights in you. And he wants to transform your life and conform you to the image of his beloved son. If that's not love, I don't know what is. 
And so what I want to help you guys understand today and be an encouragement, not only to myself, but to you today, is to describe this blessed life on the mountain that we may not have our best life now, but we certainly have a blessed life now. And, and for many of us, that certainly, that certainly is, an, is, is a truth we escape or we ignore or we suppress or we allow to get buried under the mountain of affliction that we seem to either <laughs> hoist upon ourselves or that we're just going through as the natural course of life. We know that affliction and suffering vary throughout life, but we understand still that God has drawn near to us and has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, as Ephesians 1 clearly outlines. This is the blessing of the kingdom. If God delights in us, then surely we can conclude that God blesses His people. Even in spite, we're not denying affliction, we're not denying the trials of life, we're not denying death and suffering and cancer and taxes, right? But we're understanding that through all of that, God cherishes us, and God, having drawn near to us, blesses us. And so this is life on the rock in light of those blessings. So firstly, and there are several here, and we'll, and we'll get through all of them, I'm pretty sure, but I, and this is by no means an exhaustive list of, these, of, of, how, of how the rock frames our view of God's blessing, but I, but I trust that these will be helpful to us, and to myself included, some of these characteristics will be a rebuke. They will, tell, they, they will confront you with your thinking, your errant thinking about God and about Jesus and about the way the Holy Spirit works in His people to bring those blessings. And so here's the first one. The rock or the blessings of the rock are unfathomable. They are unfathomable. I think that's the first thing I would want to point out. There is something about the way God blesses us, blesses us that really beggar, begs description, beggars description. We, we try, when we actually are honest with ourselves, when we use Scripture as our guide to try to accurately comprehend the blessings and riches of God's grace, words really fail. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his, judgment, his judgments and unfathomable his ways. See, God has revealed us to himself, right? He, he, is, a, he is a merciful God that way. He wants to be known. He, he wants to be sought after. And he wants to draw near to his people. But even for the human mind, right? Even as image bearers, even with regenerate minds able to grasp some of the truths of God, there just comes this termination point where we, we go here and no further because we just can't understand that God is unfathomable. God in His holiness, God in His righteousness, God in His grace, God in His blessing, because part of blessing us is wisdom and knowledge of Himself. But even Paul says, we think, man, if someone knows something in the Bible other than Jesus, we would think, Paul, we think this guy knows something, but even he comes to a limit. How unsearchable are his judgment and, and unfathomable his ways. We know his judgments are true and good. We know his ways are righteous and pure. And yet, man, they're unsearchable. There are limitations. And we should make the, come to that same conclusion uh, pertaining to the blessings of God, where we simply are just amazed and blown away and we really have no words. And that's why the psalmist can say, Psalm 119, verse 14, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. We know, we know, even though his ways and his blessings are unfathomable, we do know that they are riches. We know that in Christ we are rich beyond measure because we have Christ. Listen to David, Psalm 139, verses 17 through 18. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. So even he understands. Godly men understand this. Though they know God, though they, know, though they delight in him and draw near to him, there is still this perplexity that they face. They come to the end of themselves. They just, they just can barely put it into words how great God is in his blessings and grace. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. How, va like, how vast is the sum of them? 
And this is an encouragement as well as rebuke to you who have a hard time seeing the blessings of God, right? Many of us are going through that right now, and I'm telling you, consider though, consider life on the rock. Consider your life hidden with Christ in God. And is that not far superior to how your life was outside of Christ, I've been binge reading uh, the Old Testament lately, and I, and I am amazed at how often the Israelites, having been delivered out of bondage to Egypt, a, a, an oppressive and tyrannical government, and then as soon as affliction hits, what's the first thing they do? Oh, Moses, 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 right? It would, be, it would have been so much better if we had been in Egypt, if we had never come out of Egypt. At least we had bread there, right? At least our, our slaves, our, our, our taskmasters, our slave masters, they fed us, right? You've brought us out here to die. And by accusing Moses, they were accusing God. Remember, the great crime, the great crime of that generation and why they were barred from the promised land, don't miss this, is because they were accusing God of not being holy. They were accusing God of basically deserting them. They were accusing God of not caring, of not drawing near. They basically were saying, God has abandoned us. And yet God stayed with them, even though they died in the desert, he was still with them. He still preserved them, and he preserved their seed, and their children entered into the promised land. But, we, but many of you are, are like the Israelites. The first time affliction hits, you turn to God and you say, Lord, surely you have abandoned me. Surely you are not with me. Boy, wasn't life great when you were an unregenerate pagan? Wasn't life great in unbelief? All of it. Now, wasn't sin, wasn't sin just so fun and enjoyable, right? You forgot the misery that it brought you. You forgot the, the darkness that was always overcoming you. You, for, you forgot this, you, you, for, you forgot what it was like to be ignorant and hopeless and joyless. You forgot how miserable slavery was. And so then you act like your life in Christ is, is more miserable than slavery, and many of us need to repent of that very thinking, because the things that we, that we accuse God of by, its, by that very nature of saying, oh, life was so much better in, the de- in, in, in Egypt, life was so much better in the desert, life was so much better without God, it should, what, what, is, what is truly unfathomable, friends, is that a Christian would ever think like that, is that a Christian in whom dwells the Holy Spirit of God should ever think that way, that somehow God has deserted him, that somehow God does not care, so much so that we can barely whisper any of the blessings and goodness that God has richly given us. We loathe this bread, Moses. (laughs) I wish we were back in Egypt. Life was so good before God came in and took over. Start thinking, righteousness, righteousness is lame. Righteousness is no fun. All my, none, of my, none of my friends like me. They're still out there having fun sinning. I mean, what a twisted, warped, and perverse way of thinking. It's like you're thinking like an unbeliever when you think that way. I mean, think about it. Was life really that good apart from Christ? And if you have turned away from him, is your, is your retreat to back to that life of sin so enriching? Does it bring so much joy that you barely have a second thought of the king who has claimed you and who has ransomed your life from the pit? I think that's what makes the book of Deuteronomy so helpful. They are, Moses warns them again and again about forgetting God, about forgetting the rock and wandering away from him. You know, you also may be a faithful Christian and you're going through a lot of affliction right now. There's that, there is that avenue as well. Some people run away from God, some people cling to God, and yet the affliction just seems to be, at a, it's, it's, it's up there, it's right at the nose. And you, and you feel like you're about to drown. And the mists of suffering seem to obscure the glory of God. We may feel like the psalmist in Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning, and yet God draws near. He is near to the brokenhearted. He is near to the afflicted. 
And He holds us up with His right hand and preserves our soul. I mean, haven't you read Psalm 23? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. You're in the valley of the shadow of death. And you have one reason not to fear. It's because God is with you, right? God is holy. He has not abandoned you, and he draws near to you. Don't make the mistake that Israel did, who did not understand the heart of God for his people, who did not understand the fact that he drew near, not just to be stagnant, but to bless and to give grace and life to his people. So in your sorrow, in your darkest hour, when you seem like, when you think you're clinging to life, clinging to any ray of hope, you believe, you believe, but it seems like all joy has been sucked away. And while the love for God is still there, it is little. Remember this quote by Charles Spurgeon, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. See, the ways of God are unfathomable. We, are, we don't always know what he's doing. Think about Job. When Satan afflicted him, killed his children, afflicted Job with boils, what didn't Job do? He didn't accuse God of wrongdoing. He was perplexed, but he blessed the Lord. And you know what? At the end of the narrative, what's it, what, what really sticks out is the fact that God never told Job what was going on behind the scenes. But what does God ask of us. What does he command from us? Trust him. Trust his heart. We can't always see his hand. We don't always know the details of what he's doing. And, 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 I, and I would ask you too, even if you did, would that satisfy you? For many of us, it would not. So trust the heart of God. Trust the heart of God for his people. And you will not be disappointed. Think of 1 Peter 1, 6-7, quoting the prophets. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, that is Christ, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Let me challenge you with this. Many of you may have at one point in life said, I am disappointed with God. And I think a good question to ask yourself is, have I drawn near, have I even enjoyed God enough to claim disappointment. And I will say, just to qualify that, that none of us has a right to be disappointed in God. That is mistaken thinking. And let me tell you this, God is not disappointed in you. You realize that? God is not disappointed in you. Disappointment refers to unmet expectations. You thought a church, a person, a circumstance, a spouse, or an opportunity was going to bring a certain outcome, and it didn't. See, God doesn't, God doesn't view his creation like that. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything that's going to happen. Down to the most minute detail, he knows everything that's going to happen to you. He knows when you are going to screw up the worst. He knows when you're, gonna, you're just going to bite the dust and you're going to act faithlessly. See, God's not disappointed because he knew that was going to happen. But you should know that as a Christian, when you bite the dust, God is with you and he will deliver you. And yet he still says, trust my heart for you. But that is the question. Have you drawn near to God? Where, where, where does the claim for di being disappointed in God even come from? Imagine, you know, we live in an Air Force town. It's kind of like this. Imagine, imagine an airman, airwoman, airperson. Um, they, you know, they're getting ready to fly They've, you know, they've done all the classes, and, and they get assigned to fly. What's a really cool jet? An F-16, F-22? Let's, let's go with an F-22. F okay, F-22, right, F-22. They, they, and, and they learn about the plane, right? They, they, they read the manual, right? They're, they're aware of the, the, the stealth capabilities, its armaments, and its cool thrust vectoring. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds awesome, okay? And then they go back, and they report, and they say, man, that was, that was really, I was really disappointed by this, by this jet. Just really disappointed. Well, have you, did you climb into the cockpit and, and zoom away? Oh, no, 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 I didn't do that. I just, I read the manuals and I just, I'm not, I am not satisfied. And yet we treat God the same way, right? We treat him the exact same way. We, we, it's like we may, we may learn certain things along the way, but we never actually experience God. 
We never draw near to him. We don't, we don't walk with him. We don't delight in him. I mean, you, you, you would really have a sharp word for that person. Did you bother getting in the jet and enjoying it and going really fast and having an awesome experience like that? I mean, you would be the envy of many people. You got to fly in an F-22. I wonder what that's like. And that's what I'm saying, friends. People should, should be questioning our life with, in Christ like, you, you know God personally? You walk with God daily? What's that like? And yet all we have, so many of us, all you have is this response of hanging your head low and explaining why God failed to meet your expectations. And if the church is ever going to be effective, we have to stop thinking of God that way. I mean, the Bible is very clear about what God does, what He is capable of. And when we fail to see things the way he does, we, we, we are simply worshiping an idol. Our, 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 our worship is idolatrous. Because we are imagining vainly things about God that are simply not true. And we have turned away to, to desire and cling to those things instead of looking at what the Word says about God and trusting in that. And as Peter says, that what, what, what we know about God, how he reveals himself is precious. It is a precious value. And he says it's for those who believe, right? But he says for those who disbelieve, the stone which, this, which the builders rejected, that this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It should be foreign, a foreign concept that believers are tripping over the rock of Christ. We stand on the rock. We don't trip over it. That's for those who disbelieve. Deuteronomy corrects our thinking in this regard. Chapter 32, verse 4, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. You want a lesson on God being a rock? Read Deuteronomy chapter 32. God is our rock. God is characterized as a rock, and the first thing we need to know about that rock is, is just the depth and glory and how unfathomable his goodness is toward us. Remember that. The rock, the rock is good. The rock is for us. And the Christian always has a sure and steady place to stand. We have been saved from God's wrath and set on a high place, right? a place where only the Christian can tread. Scripture tells us that we have been given hind's feet, right? Hind's feet to walk the high places, that we can walk the rock and not slip over it, that we can, we've been made new, we have been given all the equipment necessary to stand firmly on the rock and rejoice in all circumstances, as difficult as it may be. So if the rock is unfathomable, the second thing we need to learn about the, mount, the rock is that it is unmistakable. I mean, if any of you have ever driven, especially from the east, you'll know when you see Pike's Peak, right? There is something unmistakable about America's mountain. And you can see it from very far away. Mountains are a, a landmark, right? They are prominent. They are easy to see. And even on, on a clear day, you can see them from miles and miles away. Many moons ago, when I was a, when I was a young man, <laughs> uh, Katie and I went to, went to Alaska, had a great time, saved up our money, took a cruise, and we went into Denali National Park. Now, people talk a lot about Everest. Everest, Everest gets all the fanfare. But Denali, if you, look, if you actually look at a scale, it may not rise as high as Everest does above sea level, but it is a much, much larger mountain. I would say more majestic, more beautiful. It's, and, that, and that's one thing. If you, when you see Denali in Alaska, you know you've seen the mountain. And when we were in the park um, hiking around and just exploring uh, during those couple of days, uh, it, the, the, Denali was obscured the entire time. The mountain's so big, it has its own weather system. And so there's many days out of the year where you can't see it. And so Katie and I, you know, we're hiking, we're going on these little, these little trails, and, you know, we're with other people, and and, and, you see, and you see where it's supposed to be out there in the distance. But there's clouds, and you have all these 
you know, there were a lot of old, old people on our, on our tour, and you'd hear everyone, every once in a while, one of them chime in, is that the mountain? Is that the mountain there? No, it's not the mountain. Stop asking. We would see all these really short peaks, snow on them, beautiful landscape, but that was not the mountain, because you know it when you see it. And I didn't see it the entire time, but it turns out you can see it in Anchorage, which is 130 miles away from the actual mountain. And so when we took off, it, was, it happened to be on a clear day. I looked out the window, and bam, there was the mountain. That was the mountain. <laughs> Could see it. And it was, it was breathtaking. It's like you don't realize how big that mountain is until you see it for yourself. It's amazing. And there should be something unmistakable especially to the Christian, concerning the mountain of God. It should be an an ever-present reminder, reality, that we stand on the rock, that we stand on the mountain with all of its itinerant blessings. See, that's the key here. The blessings of God whilst standing on the rock should be unmistakable, that we know always that God is for us and not against us, that we have a certain comfort, right? What do we just sing what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. And I'm glad we sing it twice because we sing it once and it's like we forget. But Christ alone is our hope, is our comfort in life and death. And as Christians, that should be unmistakable. That should be the most obvious thing, that our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. And we have that hope set up for us, never able to be taken away because The kingdom of Christ is inherently a hopeful kingdom. It looks forward. It anticipates all of the promises of God in Christ. We should be looking for them. We should be encouraged by them. We should be reminding ourselves and other Christians of those blessings. They should be unmistakable in their comfort, even in their majesty, They are beautiful in our sight because we know they come from God. See, we don't mistake the blessing for the blesser. It should also be unmistakable in its effect, right? What what does life in the kingdom of God mean? Life in the kingdom of God points to our sanctification. See, as we are God's people and His Holy Spirit, His very presence dwells with us, that has an effect that makes an impact, that transforms us from the inside out. Once we were dead, once we were estranged, and now we belong to God. We have drawn near. We are His people. And now that we are His people, He does a sanctifying work in us so that we become more like Christ, right? So that we see what He sees. We love what He loves. We hate what He hates. We are drawn to what He is drawn to. And that very thing should be unmistakable unmistakable. Don't forget the rock. There is a rebuke in, once again, returning to Deuteronomy 32, 18. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. Now, that is a stinging rebuke, perhaps for many of you in here. You have forgotten God. You have forgotten that God is your rock and your salvation, and that as you have been born again, you take on the same, the same characteristics as the rock. But you have forgotten that that transformation. We see the same we see the same thing in uh, in Second Peter, right? If you want to turn there very quickly, I'm reminded of this passage. He goes through this list of godly qualities, right? And they and they compound and they add to one another until the fullness of those qualities is love in verse 7, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Now go to verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's a useless Christian is a Christian who forgets the rock who gave you birth. Okay, now listen to this. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. See, that's why we sin. We forget. We forget who we are. We forget whose we are. We forget that we belong to God. We forget that God is, is good and is drawn near to us 
and who lavishes his love and delight on us and blesses us with all that he has to give. And so as Deuteronomy simply reminds, don't neglect the rock who begot you. Don't forget the God who gave you birth. Don't forget the God who made you new. So it's unmistakable in its effect. Thirdly, the rock is unbreakable. Let's consider, again, the nature of rocks and the blessings that accompany them. The, the rock, the mountain, as it were, is unbreakable. Right? When we think of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ as a rock or as a mountain, we, we, can, we can think about this marvelous truth that the kingdom of Christ will never be divided. It will never be split up. And as you survey just the history of, of empires, what often happens due to some kind of political skullduggery and betrayal and stabbing in the back, rather, whether metaphorical or literal, these kingdoms inevitably divide. They fragment and they fade away. I mean, <laughs> you think about our own country right now, and in some ways it's a huge mess. But, but when you think of the good old USA, what's one word that comes to mind? Division. Political division, ideological division, you could say even spiritual division. We have seen this gradual rise of, of atheism and agnosticism, and militantly so. And of course, the church is called to confront that unbelief and to command them to turn to Christ and trust in Him and obey Him and to have faith in Him. But those assertions come from a heart that trusts God and knows that His kingdom will never be divided. It will never be broken up. I mean, that's what we see clearly in the book of Daniel, where it describes His kingdom as, if you want to go to that, uh, let's see, uh, verse 44, it will never be destroyed, right? It'll ne- the kingdom that crushes other kingdoms will itself never be crushed, never be destroyed, It'll never come, it'll never unravel. It will only grow. It may be assaulted from without and even sometimes from within, but it will never be destroyed. It will never come to an end. And it says that kingdom will not be left for another people. Well, what people will it be left for? It will be left for the people of God who will reign and rule with Christ forever. But that is the hope we have, is that this kingdom, because of mostly because of its king, not because of its citizens, but because the king who rules it, he will keep his kingdom from breaking apart, from fragmenting and ending up like every other kingdom. I mean, that's something that should encourage us. We have to remember that it is the king ultimately, with all rule and authority as ruler over the kings of the earth, will never let his kingdom be broken. Now imagine all of the agents that infiltrate this kingdom, to try to sow division. That's why, I mean, that is why division is seen as such a heinous sin, right? It's repugnant to God. One of the things that the Lord hates that is an abomination to Him, as Proverbs says, is one who sows discord among brethren, a false witness who speaks lies, a lying tongue. All of those things avail themselves to division. Now, when that, when that mindset, when that attitude infiltrates the kingdom of God, it, it's still, that's still the attempt. That's still the goal. Well, let's try to break some stuff up here. Let's try to turn brother against brother. Let's, let's gossip. Let's slander. Let's libel. Let's sow discord and see if we can turn the people of God against each other. And I mean, that just shows us how gracious the Lord is, how gracious our King is. I'm sure that along the line, even after, we, even after we became Christians, how many things that we have done that deserve immediate and swift execution? We deserve to die. Apart from Christ, as unbelievers, we deserve to die. Do you realize that as believers, we still deserve to die? We deserve God's wrath, and yet we get grace, we get mercy, we get love, we get peace, we get blessings. Because God will not suffer the kingdom of His beloved Son to be broken up, and us along with it. And that is the blessing that we have here. I mean, think about the unity, the unity of the Holy Spirit. Even even the Word says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. 
And sometimes that seems so far off because of all the malicious uh, speech that can occur in a church. But that is the way it ought to be. It is good. It is pleasant. This is, this is the way life in the kingdom is to be. This is what is to be pursued, is unity amongst the brethren, those who claim to follow Christ. And so with that encouragement, there's also a warning. Don't be the devil's handmaiden and be an agent of division. That ultimately brings destruction. Because you are acting counter to the king who will not suffer his kingdom to be broken up. And so we have with that a trustworthy word that this kingdom will never be destroyed. It will never be crushed. Right? That's why we, we sing that song, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. This rock is unbreakable and also reminds us that God's word is true. The scripture cannot be broken. Right? Not only do we have a, a solid platform on which to stand, we have a good and true and sure word to proclaim to one another and to those who do not know God. Listen to what Numbers says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Right? That's a rhetorical question. He will make it good. He will tell the truth. And if he has said that he will do something, he will absolutely do it. May Christians be so zealous to speak the truth. The mountain is unbreakable. Here's another one, and this gives us comfort as well. The mountain or the rock is unassailable. It is secure, and this lends itself also to Daniel's description that it will never be destroyed. We think, okay, if it's, if it's unfathomable, unmistakable, and unbreakable, well, can it ever exchange hands? Can the mountain ultimately ever be taken? And the answer, resounding throughout Scripture, is no. We are secure in the, on this mountain. We are secure as members of the kingdom. Because it can't be assailed, it also means, as Daniel says, it will endure. It will endure forever. When God is described as a rock or as a mountain in Scripture, it's speaking of the saints' inherent security in God. Right? We are secure. Listen to Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God, give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I love this. He's automatically uh, acknowledging God's superiority. Right? If I am with you, I am secure. Lead me, Lord, to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. I mean, what a beautiful picture. As the psalmist writes, a refuge, a tower, a tent, refuge and shelter of your wings. I mean, think about the, think of the visual there. Is there, do we have any reason to doubt the security that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ? The mountain, the rock, is unassailable. And for this, we should have confidence, great confidence. I was talking to a dear brother, I want to say three weeks back or so, and, and um, rightly so, he was talked late at night and he was just lamenting. He was, <laughs> as we often do, he was lamenting the state of men, men, males in particular, Christian men who just seem to have no trust in God. The, at the first sign of trouble, they wilt, they buckle, and, and all trust is gone. And one thing he said, he's like, I just, I don't understand. Don't we serve a great king, Jonathan? He's the king, he's in charge, and yet men are just, here's the word he used, they're just pansies. What's up with men who claim Christ and then can't trust him? I mean, that's a huge rebuke. And the, here's the ironic thing, because I was reflecting during this conversation, and he kind of alluded to the fact that he wasn't talking about me, but little did he know he was talking about me. <laughs> I mean, I was like, yeah, I, man, I'm guilty of that. But I was so encouraged at what he had to say, because like, man, 
The Lord is on the throne. Why do we keep forgetting this? Why is it all, every time some affliction happens, we just, we doubt and we act like God has abandoned us and that all is like, the kingdom is lost. Right? Let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's no hope. There's no future. We're going to lose everything we've worked for and God has turned his back on us and he's made our work fruitless. Imagine that coming from the lips of a man of God. And yet we do it so often. And so I share his lamentation. But we have to remember that the mountain is unassailable. The solid rock upon which we stand will never be taken, will never fall to an enemy. You guys have heard of the story about Masada, right? Where, where, where during the, 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 the Roman siege of Jerusalem, which ended in its sacking in AD 70, right? Several of the Jews ran to the fortress of Masada, and they hold up there, I think, I think the total was three years, and the Romans built ramps and all kinds of siege machinery, and eventually, eventually, they took Masada, but when they did, they'd found that everyone had perished. I believe it was a mass suicide, if I remember my history correctly. But we can't think of the rock that way. The rock is unassailable, and we should have the confidence to know that the rock will never be taken. We don't have to hold ourselves up. Though it is a refuge and a fortress, we can boast that we stand on the rock of Christ, that the King has us secure, that the King is for us. We don't have to hide. We don't even have to wait the enemy out. We can even go out to enemy territory and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. We're telling them, come to the rock of your salvation. Come to this tower, this fortress that will never crumble, that will never be taken. Have the same confidence in our king that we do. That's what we're crying out to the world to do, to repent. Get off that sinking sand and come to the rock. The name of the Lord, Proverbs 18.10 says, is a strong tower. The righteous run into it, and they are safe. Listen to Isaiah 44.8, one of my favorite verses. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Right? Some of us tremble, some of us are afraid, but the Lord says, do not do that. That's a simple command. Don't do it. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? You And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock I know of none? See, this is the problem. We act like the fortress is assailable. We act like, especially in times of affliction, we act as if the, the fort has been taken, that the tower is crumbled, or there's some secret way in which the enemy can infiltrate and, and retake the rock. And so we look for this security elsewhere. It's like we go out to the sand and we say, I'm going to stand here. You know, <laughs> there's this movie I used to watch as a kid. Any of you he heard of the never-ending story? Never-ending story? Good stuff, right? A masterpiece in cinema. <laughs> but, 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 the, but the hero, Atreyu, is in this swamp, in this misty, dark swamp. And, and one of the rules of the swamp is if you get sad, you start to sink in the mire. And, and Atreyu's horse, Artax, is standing there. It's just a horse, and he starts sinking. And Atreyu's like, Artax, you stupid horse, what's wrong with you? Why is my horse sad? <laughs> Many of us are like that dumb horse. We're just, we're sad, we're miserable, we can't even articulate why, and we're just sinking. And it's like, why are you, what are you sinking about? Why are you sinking when the rock has been brought near to you? And sadly, yeah, our tax sinks in the, in the mire and, and dies. And yet that's what we are like when we forget that we're not in the quicksand. We're, we're on the rock because God has placed us there. Right? What do, we re do, do, you, do you believe what the Word of God says when He tells us in Colossians 1 that He rescued us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son? Not only has He snatched us away out of enemy territory, but He has set us on a high place. He has transferred us. He's taking us, he has taken us out of the clutches of the enemy. And yet we, just, we read this and it's like it just doesn't sink in. We act like it's not true. Peter puts this in nice perspective as well. 1 Peter 1, 4-5. 1, 
talks about this obtaining of an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Right? This inheritance he gives us, right? we act like, it's not, like God has nothing for us. But notice the, 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 the protective element in this. We, this, this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. It's like every possible way that one can say, once God has given this to you, you cannot lose it. And yet we still struggle to trust God in this regard. But we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. All the promises are there, and yet we fail to believe them. Listen to Psalm 27.5, for in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. Right? This is the security we have in God. God. God does not promise us safety all the time, but he does promise us security. Right? Ultimately, we are secure in him. We are, we, and we find that security, I think, most magnified in the fact that we are not safe, that sometimes being a Christian is dangerous but our confidence is that though we may not be safe, we are still always secure. Everything that God has given to us is ours. Everything that He has given us pertaining to eternal life is ours and ours forever. Now listen to this, this promise from our Lord Himself in Luke 12. And He said to His disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. See, this on the rock we have every provision that we need, so don't worry. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you, you are than the birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? See, why is our faith so little? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying for all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. See, the nations are in an uproar. This is the uproar. You know what the sound of uproar is? Worry. But the Father knows you need all these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Now listen to this. Don't miss verse 32. This is where we land our plane on this. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. We keep talking about not viewing God as a stingy miser. Right? But he gladly gives us the kingdom. He's not holding something back from us. Everything that he desires to give us in Christ, he gives us, and that is the kingdom. He's giving us the kingdom that we enter by faith. So if God says, do not be afraid, why are we afraid of everything and everyone in every circumstance? The mountain is unassailable. It will never be taken. And so it prevails upon the Christian then to never be shaken. Here's another one, and we'll get through these last two quickly. The mountain is also unsinkable. You think of all the things that could possibly happen to a rock, right? Not so with the kingdom of Christ. The mountain is also unsinkable. It's not going anywhere. It's not, it's not going to break apart. It's not going to be retaken and given to another, nor is it going to plunge beneath the depths of the earth and disappear. What does this tell us? What's the lesson here for the Christian? What's the encouragement? Is that we have the sure foundation of God's Word. We are able, effectively, to see things the way God sees them. I think sometimes we miss out on this benefit, is that we don't realize that God has given, through His Word, His very perspective. We can think God's thoughts after Him. We can see things the way He sees them. And how often we ignore that amazing reality. The mountain is the high ground. We have the high ground. And it is a perilous thing to attack the high ground. You might actually get your legs lopped off. You never know. And we can claim to the world, we have the high ground. We have the advantage because we have the Word of God. There should be something imposing about the rock to those who do not know God. 
There should be something perplexing and vexing about it. But they cannot assail it. They can't really understand it. But they know it's there. And they know they can't take it. And that is why we go out and proclaim the good news to those who don't know God. Because an honest appraisal to those outside of the rock would say, Oh no, alas, I am sinking. What is... Who can rescue me? I need help. I am going under, and there's nothing I can do about it. And that's why we have this word of hope and life to deliver to them with, with confidence, with surety, and to do so with, with patience. Right? There's nothing, nothing's going to happen to the rock. It's not going to sink. And, and what a witness that is to those who do not know God. What, is, what, what a witness that is to Christians knowing that we're never going under. But the Lord we serve and that the kingdom that he has established is always going to stay. It's never going to become unestablished. It's unsinkable. It's not going anywhere. It's, and it's, this, is, this, this is something that's hard. Like this is, those who don't know Christ should think, should think it difficult, right? You don't, just, you don't just move a mountain, right? Moving a rock is hard enough. I was building a fence with uh, Brigin back there a few weeks ago. And we had, to, we had to demo this fence and then put a new fence line in. And, this, and, and a fence that should have taken us three days to do took six. And the reason why is that lining the property line along the fence line were rocks about this big, some as big as bowling balls. And you try to put new posts in, you try to put pickets in, and it's always hitting the, these little rocks. And it's a pain, and you got to dig them up. And, and so it doubles the amount of time that it would normally take to build. And you think, if, if rocks this size cause that much consternation, imagine a mountain. Is anyone going to uproot that? Is anyone going to make it sink or come apart? No. There should be a perplexity regarding the nature of the mountain to those outside of it. And yet we have the mind of Christ. We have been given the mind of Christ so we can see the mountain the same way the king does and know that it's never going to sink. And when we give witness, right, remember what Peter says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, right? We're always ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. But first, Christ must be acknowledged as holy. Our Lord Jesus Christ must be acknowledged as with us. The king isn't going to sink. Wherever the king is standing is not going to sink. So if you're standing with the king, what aren't you going to do? You're not going to sink either. That's the confidence we have. Finally, the rock is incomparable. This is the thing. Often imitated but never duplicated. And this is where discernment comes in. This is a call for you as a Christian. And the realization of your blessing depends on this. Don't be fooled by faux rocks, <laughs> right? You know, many of you ladies might look at your uh, wedding ring. Is that, a, is that a diamond? What is, what is that on there? Is that, you know, <laughs> don't do that, please. Um, the mountain is incomparable. There are counterfeits out there. But those rocks, those would-be rocks, they will break apart. They will sink. They will, they will fall over. They will be taken. They will be destroyed. So don't be deceived in this. Test all things. Test the spirits. Don't fall to the idolatry and mere speculations of foolish men. Knowing, know that there is a rock, there is only one rock, and that is the rock of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. As 1 Samuel 2, 2 says, There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Right? There is one rock, and that is what you must constantly remind yourselves of. Don't go looking for another rock. You'll find yourself sinking. The one who stands on the rock of Christ will never sink, will never be removed, will never be taken or destroyed. So his confidence is built solely on Christ, his rock and his redeemer. And that constant reminder for the Christian is fix your eyes on Christ, right? The true rock, the author and perfecter of your faith. Do not stand upon another. You are secure. Right? You are preserved. You are loved. That's life on the rock. Let's pray. Father, we again praise you for your provision for us. We see your
amazing grace expressed by the fact that you are our rock. You have given us Christ. You've given us of your Son. The stone cut out without hands that subdues and destroys these other kingdoms and then grows into a mountain that fills the earth. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be shaken. We never have to worry about the storms of life battering against the house because our house that you are building, Father, is on the rock. So please, Lord, work in our midst. Help us to, uh, to repent from unbelief. Lord, we, as the disciples asked you, Lord, help our unbelief. Some, some of us struggle so much keeping our eyes fixed on you, and like Peter, we are sinking in the sea. And Lord, give us a sorrow that leads to repentance so that in our sorrow we would look to you and not look to other earthly pleasures to fill the void that only Christ can fill. Help us flee from sin. Help us flee from idolatry. Uh, idolatry. Help us flee from sexual immorality. Help us flee from unbelief itself, Lord, and to cling to you. Renew our confidence. Renew our minds so that we know that in any situation we are secure in you because you love us, because you have sought us out. Lord, is, and even a, a scripture I forgot to reference from John 10, that you are the good shepherd and that no one will pluck us out of your hand because we are secure in you. So may that be our confidence this morning, Lord, as we continue our worship. In Christ's precious name we pray, amen.